You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. everyone. Welcome to episode number 98 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall from the end of the last show, the Confederate Army of New Mexico had driven the enemy from the field at the Battle of Valverde on February 21st, 1862. But it turned out to be a hollow victory because the Federals were able to safely retreat back behind the walls of Fort Craig. As we pointed out at the close of the last episode, the Confederate commander, Henry Hopkins Sibley, was caught on the horns of a real dilemma after his victory at Valverde. After the battle was over, the Federal commander, Edward Canby, had his still strong force back behind the walls of Fort Craig, and the day after Valverde, Canby angrily refused Sibley's demand that the fort and its supplies be surrendered. Canby's defiance put Sibley in a precarious position, since the Confederates weren't strong enough to attack Fort Craig, and since the Texans only had five days' worth of provisions left after the battle, they couldn't afford to settle in and subject the fort to a prolonged siege. Many factors must have weighed on Sibley's mind as he sought a way out of the dilemma he faced after the Battle of Valverde. Since his army wasn't strong enough to directly attack Fort Craig, and since he didn't have the supplies he needed to settle in and besiege the place, Sibley really only had two options left open to him. He could retreat back to south to Mesilla, or he could continue on with his invasion of New Mexico, leaving Fort Craig isolated in his rear as he headed north to Albuquerque and Santa Fe, hoping that at those places his army would be able to secure the supplies it so desperately needed. After he received Canby's refusal to surrender the fort, Sibley held a council of war where he and his top lieutenants decided not to retreat back to Mesilla, which would have been an admission that their invasion had failed. The Confederates instead decided they must go forward, running the risk of leaving Fort Craig in their rear and head north to Albuquerque and Santa Fe, where they expected they would be able to replenish their supplies from captured Federal depots. And so turning his back on Fort Craig, Sibley brought up his depleted supply train and turned his men northward, following the road on the west bank of the Rio Grande as it led them onward to Albuquerque and Santa Fe. When the Confederates decided to march off northward after the Battle of Valverde, the Federal commander at Fort Craig, Edward Canby, then had a decision of his own to make. He could pursue the enemy up the frontier road, trying to bring them to battle before they reached Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Or he could leave only a small garrison at Fort Craig and the rebels' rear 
and march quickly north with the bulk of his command, moving around the Confederates and bypassing Albuquerque and Santa Fe so that he could get to Fort Union and reinforce that critically important post. Or he could remain at Fort Craig with a strong force astride the Confederates' line of communications, knowing that even after the rebels captured Albuquerque and Santa Fe, they would then still be confronted by the Federal force at Fort Union. Canby decided on the third option. He would continue to hold Fort Craig with a strong force and so remain a problem in the Texans' rear. This would keep the valuable supplies at the fort from falling into the enemy's hands and also leave him in a position to cooperate with the Federal force at Fort Union at some time in the future to defeat the invaders and force their retreat back down the Rio Grande. But holding Fort Craig was not the extent of Canby's plan. On the night of February 22nd, he sent out a force of New Mexico volunteers and militia with orders to operate on Sibley's flank and harass the enemy column as it moved northward. He also sent fast couriers racing north to Albuquerque and Santa Fe, ordering the army officers in charge of the depots there to remove what supplies they could to Fort Union and to destroy the rest. Meanwhile, as the Texans moved slowly north toward Albuquerque, they seized food and other supplies from the local population. But the rebels had already discovered that it would be impossible for even their small army to actually live off the land, since during the preceding two years, droughts had hit the region, affecting the availability of foodstuff and forage. And besides that, the Hispanic populace's fear and hatred of the Texans led them to hide their food and livestock from the invaders. In an attempt to prevent the destruction of the supplies in Albuquerque before he could get to them, Sibley ordered Major Charles Pyron to take 200 men ahead of the army and secure the town. Pyron's small detachment reached Albuquerque on March 2nd, but just the day before, the Federals there were able to load up all available wagons with government stores and supplies, set fire to what they couldn't take with them, and withdraw safely to Santa Fe, about 65 miles to the northeast. But when Pyron's men rode into town on March 2nd, they did find that the locals had managed to save part of the Federal supplies from the flames, so the Texans promptly confiscated much of what had been pillaged from the depots. In that way, Pyron secured much-needed supplies for Sibley's column, but his actions also reinforced the New Mexicans' fear and hatred of the invading Texans. The locals were given even more cause to despise the Texans when the main body of Sibley's army arrived, established camps around Albuquerque, and proceeded to search the villages and farms in the surrounding countryside for supplies, which they seized. But the delay at Albuquerque cost the Confederates dearly, since the Union quartermaster at Santa Fe used the time to load up 120 wagons with government stores, and on March 4th, he evacuated the territorial capital. The wagon train, escorted by the Federal troops who had been garrisoning Santa Fe, made it safely to Fort Union, about 85 miles to the northeast. As at Albuquerque, all the supplies that could not be taken away were put to the torch. The governor also left Santa Fe, moving the territorial government and its records to Las Vegas near Fort Union. And that's Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada, which didn't even exist back in these olden days. Right. Anyway, in his book, The Civil War in the American West, Alvin M. Josephy Jr. explains the Confederates' next moves. 
quote, Resupplied with food for about 40 days, largely the result of the fortuitous capture on a mountain road east of Albuquerque of a wagon train of provisions bound for Fort Craig, Sibley finally started his army north again. With the company of brigands in the lead, Pyron's battalion was sent from Albuquerque to Santa Fe. On March 10th, the roughneck brigands rode into the capital, plundering and terrorizing its merchants and wealthier inhabitants. Three days later, Pyron's command arrived and raised the Confederate flag over the 250-year-old Palace of the Governors. Soon afterward, Pyron was joined by four companies of Green's 5th Regiment. At the same time, Scurry's 4th Regiment and a battalion of the 7th turned eastward from Albuquerque, crossed the juniper and pinyon-covered Sandia Mountains, and moved slowly northeastward, bypassing Santa Fe and heading toward the Santa Fe Trail, which led from the capital to Fort Union. Sibley himself remained in Albuquerque, keeping Colonel Green and six companies of the 5th Regiment with him to guard against a northern movement by Canby from Fort Craig. End quote. And so with Albuquerque and Santa Fe in their hands, the Confederate seizure of New Mexico was almost complete. True, Fort Gregg was still holding out behind them, but ahead only Fort Union barred the Texans from pushing on to Colorado Territory and capturing its rich mining regions. Sibley had served at Fort Union before the war, and he was certain that the post would offer little challenge to his advancing army. He was confident of an easy victory at the fort, and he looked forward to securing the vast quantity of supplies stored there, which would allow his army to continue moving northward and invade Colorado. So, since our focus has shifted from Fort Craig to Fort Union, we should probably say a few things about the new object of the Confederates' attention. Fort Union had been established by the Army about 90 miles northeast of Santa Fe, at a spot where the two major branches of the Santa Fe Trail came together. The fort was set up as a supply and remount center. Munitions and provisions and other supplies were stockpiled there after having been hauled more than 700 miles along the Santa Fe Trail from Missouri and Kansas. Fort Union was the central government supply depot for the entire territory of New Mexico, and it was those supplies which Sibley's force dearly wanted to get their hands on. Commanding Fort Union was 58-year-old regular Army Colonel Gabriel R. Paul. Because of Canby's isolated position down at Fort Craig after the Battle of Valverde, Colonel Paul sensibly assumed command of, quote, all troops, posts, and depots in the department not under the immediate command of Colonel Canby, end quote. Canby approved of Paul's action, and on March 21st, Paul received word that Canby wanted Fort Union held at any cost. Reinforcements were expected from California and Colorado, and once they arrived, Paul was to let Canby know when the federal force at Fort Union was strong enough to take the field against the Confederates. Canby's hope was that at some point in time, the troops from Forts Craig and Union could coordinate their actions and defeat the invaders and force the Texans to retreat back down the Rio Grande. Canby was expecting reinforcements from California and Colorado because the War Department in Washington had finally appreciated the seriousness of the situation in New Mexico. Out on the West Coast, at San Francisco, at the headquarters of the Department of the Pacific, 
They learned in December that Sibley was massing a Confederate invasion force at El Paso, and so, with the War Department's approval, they began assembling a brigade of California volunteers and an artillery company of regulars to march eastward into New Mexico from Fort Yuma on the Colorado River. The column was to be commanded by Colonel James H. Carleton, a veteran dragoon officer, and it was given the assignment of preventing Confederate invasion of Southern California. They were to do this by advancing eastward across New Mexico and helping Canby drive the Texans out of the territory. But preparing for the long desert march from Fort Yuma across New Mexico took time, and Carleton was still in Southern California when Sibley's force defeated Canby at Valverde. Help for beleaguered New Mexico, however, was coming from another direction. On February 10th, the commander of the Federal Department of Kansas ordered the governor of Colorado to, quote, send all available forces you can possibly spare to reinforce Colonel Canby, end quote. We mentioned in the last episode that a company of Colorado volunteers would fight at Valverde. They had rushed south in response to Canby's initial plea for help, but now in response to this order from the federal commander at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, the acting governor of Colorado, Lewis Weld, directed that the 1st Colorado Volunteer Infantry Regiment, led by Colonel John P. Slow, march to New Mexico. Slow was a prominent Denver lawyer, and although he had no military experience, he was named Colonel of the Regiment because he had used his influence to recruit the volunteers who would become Company A of the 1st Colorado. Organized from volunteers from the territory's mining camps and mountain towns, the 1st Colorado was composed of tough adventurers, miners, and brawlers who were more interested in saving the Union than they were in military discipline. In his book, the Battle of Glorietta, Union Victory in the West, Don E. Alberts writes, quote, The enlisted men, NCOs, and many of the officers of the 1st Regiment tended to be wild, gay, rollicking, tempestuous sons of the frontier, with little respect for formal law, but with an innate sense of fundamental justice. Dedicated individualists, they were initially almost completely undisciplined. They represented perfectly the frontier volunteer soldier. They stole regularly to keep themselves supplied with food and necessities while completing the regimental organization in Denver City. They fought among themselves, with the local police, and with merchants who objected to their informal requisition practices. One officer, Lieutenant Robert McDonald of Company K, resented the overbearing attitude of his superior officer and soundly thrashed him, to the great delight of the enlisted men watching this display of insubordination. End quote. The rough and rowdy volunteers resorted to their informal requisition practices because they poured into Denver to enlist faster than the territorial government could organize them and support them. When the quartermaster couldn't provide them with provisions, many of the men simply stole what they had to have from the stores in Denver. The restless volunteers made themselves so unpopular so quickly in the territorial capital that they were soon moved to a newly established site, Camp Weld, outside the city. On February 22, 1862, the day after the Battle of Valverde, Colonel Slow and the 1st Colorado set out from Camp Weld on the 300-mile march south to Fort Union. The men marched steadily along the front range of the Rocky Mountains. The scenery was spectacular, 
and not far south of Denver, they passed the mountain that gave them their, their nickname, Pike's Peakers. By March 7th, the regiment was camped near present-day Trinidad, Colorado, where they joined the main branch of the Santa Fe Trail. Ahead of them lay Raton Pass through the towering Raton Mountains on the border between New Mexico and Colorado. There was a light covering of snow on the ground from earlier storms as the column started up the northern slope of the pass. After a two-day climb, they reached the summit, where a private in Company F wrote in his diary that, quote, The view from this point is magnificent. Mountains meet the eye wherever it turns, end quote. At the top of the pass, the men saw several eagles soaring above the trail, and taking the sight as a sign that victory in battle awaited them, the men cheered the eagles and then pressed on. On March 9th, after the Pikes Peakers had started to descend the southern slope of the pass, they saw a messenger coming up the trail to meet them. Although a previous message had informed the Coloradans of the federal defeat at Valverde and Sibley's subsequent move northward, this messenger brought urgent information from Colonel Paul at Fort Union, telling Slow that Albuquerque and Santa Fe had fallen and that the Texans were preparing to march on Fort Union. Paul's message said that he had made preparations to hold the fort, but that he had, quote, only some 400 regulars and about the same number of volunteers to defend it, end quote. By late afternoon on the 9th, the column had reached the southern foot of Raton Pass, and there the regiment was formed up and addressed by Major John M. Shivington, a former Methodist pastor who had resigned from the ministry and took a commission in the 1st Colorado. Shivington told the men that Fort Union, still some 100 miles away, was immediately and desperately threatened. When he asked that all who would be willing to make a forced march through the night to save the fort to take two steps forward, every man in the regiment stepped forward. One of the soldiers in Company A later wrote to his mother that, quote, Here we were ordered to report in one hour for a forced march with four days grub and one blanket, end quote. After that brief pause to prepare rations, the column set off, marching through the darkness. By the morning of the 10th, the regiment had traveled 30 miles and had covered a total of 67 miles since the morning before. After a short halt, the march continued southward. The pace slowed but did not stop when a fierce snowstorm hit the column. The bitterly cold wind increased in fury until one of the miserable soldiers would later describe it as, quote, a hurricane which showered and blinded them with driven snow, dust, and sand. End quote. Pressing on by nightfall of the 10th, the Coloradans had reached Kit Carson's old ranch at Rayado, New Mexico, where they halted to try and catch a few hours' sleep, but the howling wind made it almost impossible, and so the cold, hungry, and exhausted men sat around little fires and shivered under their blankets. They were still 30 miles from Fort Union. The march continued early on the morning of the 11th. The weather let up somewhat, and Company F, the only men in the regiment who were mounted, rode on ahead of the marching infantry. By afternoon, the troopers could see Fort Union ahead in a wide, smooth valley. Company F formed up and proudly rode into the fort, with drums beating and colors flying. Most of their marching companions didn't start to arrive at the post until after nightfall, 
By the time they arrived at Fort Union, the Coloradans had traveled more than 300 miles in 13 days, averaging more than 23 miles a day, and in the final 36 hours, they had covered an astounding 92 miles. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. While the Coloradans were justifiably proud of their forced march to Fort Union, Upon their arrival, they were disgusted to learn that the post was not, in fact, immediately and desperately threatened. The Pike speakers were completely supplied and equipped with regulation uniforms, arms, and accoutrements from the fort's ample stores, but for the next week and a half, the men of the 1st Colorado simply passed the time at Fort Union, spending a great deal of that idle time in pursuit of whiskey, which in turn brought on all kinds of discipline problems and much insubordination. While the board men of the 1st Colorado itched to take the field and fight the Texans, a clash of wills was taking place at Fort Union between Colonel Paul, the experienced West Pointer and Mexican War veteran, and Colonel Slow, the Denver lawyer. You see, Paul's commission as colonel dated from December 1861, and so as soon as Slow reached Fort Union, he informed the veteran army officer that he, Slow, whose commission dated from August 1861, was now the senior officer at the post. Paul was stunned at this unexpected turn of events, and he immediately protested directly to Washington, writing, quote, I had the mortification to discover that his commission was senior to mine, and thus I am deprived of a command. An officer of only six months' service and without experience takes precedence over one of many years' service and who has frequently been in battle. 
An upset and worried Paul wrote directly to Washington instead of to Canby, since he hoped the War Department would promote him to Brigadier General of Volunteers and so solve the dilemma. But because of the amount of time it would take for messages to be exchanged with Washington, no action could be taken on Paul's request before Slow began active operations from Fort Union. And so the course of subsequent events in northern New Mexico was determined not by Canby or the War Department, but by the fact that Colonel Slow's commission was senior to Paul's. Paul's last orders from Edward Canby had been to hold at Fort Union and not to move until he received further instructions from Canby. And so Paul was alarmed when Slow made plans to add the fort's garrison to his own force of Coloradans and march at once against the Confederates. Despite Paul's opposition, Slow left him with a small detachment to guard the vital post and on March 22nd started the rest of the troops, Coloradans, regulars, and New Mexicans, started them out on the Santa Fe Trail, which led to the Confederate-held territorial capital. In Santa Fe, Confederate Major Charles Pyron received word that troops from Fort Union were advancing toward the territorial capital. Pyron was unaware that the 1st Colorado had arrived at Fort Union, so he assumed that the enemy advance was being made by elements of the fort's small garrison. Having made that assumption, Pyron was confident he could go out and defeat the Federal detachment somewhere on the stretch of the Santa Fe Trail outside the capital, and then go on to capture the fort itself. And so, with about 400 men, Pyron started eastward to meet the Federals. At Glorietta Pass, a high, constricted part of the Santa Fe Trail that twisted through the southern tip of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, the two opposing forces ran into each other. Slow's column of over 1,300 men vastly outnumbered Pyron's force, but Slow had marched his troops to a spot about 50 miles from Fort Union and then sent an advance guard of 418 men on ahead, and it was actually that smaller advance guard, led by Shivington, that Pyron encountered at Glorietta Pass. Heading along the Santa Fe Trail toward Glorietta Pass, Chivington and his detachment halted after dark on Tuesday, March 25th, at a ranch owned by Martin Kozlowski, a Polish immigrant. During the night, some of the Federal pickets captured four Confederate scouts, and from them, Chivington learned that the enemy was not far ahead. And so Chivington ordered an advance into the pass early the next morning, March 26th. By 2 p.m., his skirmishers had reached the summit of the pass and started down the western slope, where they surprised and captured a scouting party of 32 Texans. When the main body of Chivington's men received word that the Texans were nearby, they flung aside their knapsacks and hurried forward at the double quick. They soon entered a narrow, rocky valley at the western end of Glorietta Pass, known as Apache Canyon. Rounding a bend in the road, the Federals halted abruptly as they came upon the vanguard of Pyron's column, two small field guns, and a company of mounted men carrying the Lone Star flag. Startled at the sudden appearance of the enemy, the Confederates nevertheless quickly got their six-pounder cannon unlimbered and into action, firing down the road at the Federals and sending them scurrying to find cover. Shivington quickly restored order, though, and directed his infantry and some of the dismounted cavalry to climb the wooded slopes that bordered the road and flank the Texans. It was a successful maneuver, and the hot fire from above forced the Confederate gunners to pull back. 
Withdrawing about a mile and a half, Pyron's men crossed a log bridge over a dry creek bed, destroyed the bridge, and then took up a new defensive position. Pyron copied the enemy's tactics by sending some of his dismounted men scrambling up the rocky slopes on both sides of the canyon to support the guns, which set up to command the narrow road. The Federals soon appeared and came under fire from the Texans' artillery pieces. Chivington quickly sized up the situation and ordered most of his infantry and the dismounted cavalry troopers to climb the slopes and get above the Confederate skirmishers. The rest of the infantry, finding what cover they could, opened fire against the Confederates up the road. Meanwhile, on the hillsides, the Federals gradually forced the Texans back and threatened to once again pour deadly fire down onto the enemy guns below. At that point, Shivington called on a company of Colorado cavalry he kept in reserve. The mounted men charged wildly down the road, leaped the dry stream bed, and slammed into the enemy position. The speed and aggressiveness of the charge stunned the Texans. One of the Confederates later recalled, quote, On they came to what I suppose certain destruction, but nothing like lead or iron could stop them, for we were pouring it into them from every side like hail in a storm. In a moment, these devils had run the gauntlet for a half mile and were fighting hand-to-hand with our men in the road. End quote. In the chaos caused by the Coloradans' wild charge, the Confederate gunners were able to limber up their pieces and get away, and then Pyron ordered the rest of his men to retreat once again. A short while later, with darkness approaching, Chivington abandoned his pursuit of the Texans. The Federals gathered up their dead and wounded, collected the large number of prisoners they'd captured, and returned through Glorietta Pass, stopping at a roadside inn known as Pigeon's Ranch for the Frenchman who owned it, who was said to look like a pigeon when he danced the Fandango. Not long after the Federals reached Pigeon's Ranch, a Texan with a white flag rode up with a message from Pyron, asking for permission to return to the battlefield and collect the Confederate dead and wounded. Chivington agreed to a truce until 8 a.m. the next day. The engagement at Apache Canyon, though small in scale, was the first federal victory since the Texans had invaded New Mexico. Pyron's Confederates had suffered losses of three killed and one wounded, while federal casualties were five killed and 14 wounded. Prisoners, however, were another matter. Chivington's force lost just three men captured, while the Texans had 71 of their number, one-fourth of Pyron's entire command taken prisoner. But the engagement at Apache Canyon on March 26th hadn't been waged by the main forces on either side. Pyron, who realized that he had been fighting Coloradans as well as regulars from the garrison at Fort Union, had already sent a messenger for reinforcements to Colonel Scurry, who was with the 4th Texas and a battalion of the 7th Texas 16 miles to the south. Dirty Shirt Scurry set out at once and marched his troops through the freezing night. At 3 a.m. on March 27th, they arrived at Johnson's Ranch, near the western entrance to Glorietta Pass, where Pyron was encamped. As senior officer, Scurry took command and, with the thousand men now present, prepared to defend the Confederates' position against the expected Federal attack. But the expected Federal attack failed to materialize that day, and on the following morning, Friday, March 28, 1862, Scurry ordered an advance into Glorietta Pass, either to renew the fight with the enemy force that had manhandled Pyron, or to proceed to Fort Union and take the place. 
So as not to hinder his movements as he advanced through the narrow pass, he left his supply train behind at Johnson's Ranch, guarded by a small number of men. Chivington, meanwhile, had withdrawn to Kozlowski's Ranch, where there was an ample supply of water for his men. There, at about 11 p.m. on March 27th, Slow's main force arrived and joined him. Receiving word that the Confederates at Johnson's Ranch had been reinforced and intended to advance through Glorietta Pass, Slow made plans to meet them. And with that, the stage is set for the Battle of Glorietta Pass. But you guys will have to wait until next week for the decisive Battle of Sibley's New Mexico campaign, since this is where we're going to break off the story and start to wrap up this episode. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and this time we actually have two recommendations for y'all. Yep, the first is the excellent book, The Battle of Glorietta, Union Victory in the West, by Don E. Alberts. And then our second recommendation this week is a Civil War magazine back issue. The featured article in the June 1994 issue of Blue and Gray magazine was about Sibley's New Mexico campaign. That article is good, but it's also accompanied by some decent maps and some interesting photographs, so it's worth your while to get your hands on it if you're interested in these events in New Mexico. Anyway, as always, you can find all of our recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we close, Rich and I want to give a special shout out to Victor R. from California for his donation this past week. Thanks, Victor. And then thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week when we wrap up the story of Sibley's New Mexico campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.